So last week, we kicked off our study of the book of Daniel, and we learned about how this young man named Daniel and three of his friends were taken as young teenage captives from Jerusalem to Babylon when Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in the history of the world, around 605 B.C., These three friends were put into an assimilation program which was designed to teach them the ways of the Babylonians and educate them in their advanced knowledge. The end goal being them becoming useful counselors to the king of Babylon. We're going to pick up our study today in chapter 2 after Daniel and his friends have passed the assimilation program, become part of the king's panel of advisors, albeit at the lowest rookie level at this point. So let's dive in together. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. We read, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, underline dreams, and his spirit, underline spirit, was so troubled that his sleep left him. It's interesting that God is speaking to a non-believer through his dreams, and Nebuchadnezzar can tell that this particular dream is no ordinary dream. It's significant on a very deep level, and so he's deeply troubled by the fact that he can't understand what this dream means. Verse 2, then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. As we mentioned last week, all of these guys are part of the king's panel of advisors, those who are called the magi, which is short for magician. They were expected to provide a fusion of insight from natural sources like history, studying books, philosophy, but they were also expected to fuse that with supernatural insight. Most of them were heavily involved in the occult and Babylonian pagan mysticism. So when they offered the king advice, it was meant to be, king, this is what practical wisdom says, but this is also what the spirits are saying you should do. The term Chaldeans just refers to the region of Mesopotamia where Babylon was located and is just another term for the king's advisors. Verse 3, and the king said to them, he's called all of them, there's hundreds of them in his court, and he says, I have had a dream and my spirit, underline spirit, is anxious to know the dream. So he's saying, it's not just something I'm randomly curious about. On the deepest level of myself, I need to know what this means. It's bothering me. Verse 4, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. They're thinking, we got this, because nobody can really dispute an interpretation of a dream, right? It's like the guy who says he knows what the whales are saying. How are you going to prove that guy wrong? Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, and now Nebuchadnezzar reveals his innovative motivational employee performance program, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. The proper translation there is dunghill. In today's vernacular, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'll have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of, you can fill in the blank. Verse 6, however, if you tell the dream in its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream in its interpretation. 
They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. They're thinking, good one, O king. Now tell us the dream. They're thinking, he can't be serious. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. I know you're stalling, but I'm not kidding. Tell me my dream and what it means or you and all that is yours will be destroyed. And he says to them, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. In other words, till something else gets my attention. We talked about this near the end of our message last week. This phrase, you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me, makes it clear that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really think these counselors, these magi, these men who he inherited from his father's court actually have anything of value to offer him. He thinks they're full of it. And they are. So he goes on and says, therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know, underline know, that you can give me its interpretation. So write this down because this is what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar uses the dream to qualify the interpretation. You see, he's smart enough to know that anyone can make up some interpretation of his dream. So he says, if you have the supernatural insight to tell me what I dreamed, then I will know for sure that you also have the supernatural insight to tell me what that dream means. He's smart, he's like the guy who calls the psychic hotline and when they ask his name, he says, shouldn't you know? He's a smart guy. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, underline this, there is not a man on earth, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. And you know what, they're absolutely correct. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing. It means impossible thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except, and then underline the rest of this, the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Right again. You see, it's going to take a supernatural source to reveal the meaning of this supernatural dream. Verse 12 for this reason, the king was angry and very furious and does the rational thing, gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and then underline, they began killing the wise men. They began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So to understand how immediate and serious the situation was, Nebuchadnezzar has ordered the wise men, his counselors, the magi, all of them to be killed, wholesale, and the killing has actually begun. They've got a list of guys' names and they're working their way through it. And the king's men have now headed over to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's house in order to kill them too because their names are next on the list. And so yet again, Daniel finds himself in a situation that's not his fault. It's only happening because he's in a position he didn't ask for or seek out. But here's the good news, Daniel and his friends are in a situation so bad, only God can save them. And if you know anything about God, he loves coming through for his children when the situation is laid out like that. When there's nothing else that can help you other than God, he loves to show up because there's no confusion that he's the one who's showing up. So make a note of this, Daniel is facing a disaster that he can't get himself out of. Daniel is facing a disaster that he can't get himself out of. 
Verse 14, then with counsel and wisdom, underline counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So they're working their way through the list of wise men, killing them. Daniel's name comes up next on the list along with his friends. There's a knock on the door. Daniel answers, oh, hey, Arioch, what's up? I'm here under orders to kill you, your friends, so let's get this over with. And he draws his already bloody sword. Verse 15, he, Daniel, answered and said to Arioch, the captain's king, why is the decree from the king so urgent? So Arioch like literally puts his sword away and like pulls up a stool and is like, oh, you haven't, you haven't heard what's happened? Well, let me tell you, the king had this dream. And then it says, then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. Daniel's one cool customer. You see, him and his boys hadn't been invited into the king's court when the king asked the Magi to tell him the dream and the meaning of the dream because as we said at the beginning, they were rookie level advisors. They're not considered serious yet. They're at the lowest level of the hierarchy among the king's advisors, so they don't even get called in. This is the first Daniel is hearing about the king's dream. Verse 16, so Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Isn't it interesting that when the Magi asked for time, the king said, I know you're just stalling. I'm not going to give you any more time. But when Daniel says, I can do it, king, just give me a little bit of time as I've just heard about this, the king says, okay. There's something about Daniel that even in his anger, Nebuchadnezzar knows is legit. Daniel asks for time. Time to do what? Phone a friend? Well, pretty much, as we shall see. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. That's the Hebrew names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 18, underline this, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel's plan is simple. Seek God in prayer along with his friends and ask for God's mercy. That's what Daniel requested time from the king to do. So make a note of this. Prayer was Daniel's response to crises. Prayer was Daniel's response to crises. And this is one of the things that makes Daniel so extraordinary. You see, when you or I get into problematic situations in life, we might also find ourselves thinking, if only I had more time. The difference is we're almost never ending that sentence with, so that I could pray and seek the Lord, right? We're always thinking so that I could work some more hours to get some more money to get myself out of this problem. We're thinking if only I had an extra day in the week, a few more hours in the day, but we're never thinking so that we could use it to pray. So Daniel grabbed his brothers, who would also be affected by the king's order, and he says, boys, we need to pray. I am confident that at that prayer meeting, Daniel didn't have to give a little devotional at the beginning to fire them up to pray. I think they were pretty much ready to go. And how much it is that we need to be more like Daniel. Understanding Psalm 46, I put it on your outline, that says, God is our refuge and strength. And then underline a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. You see, it's not just that God is a help in times of trouble. It's that he is very present. He's not 
distant. He is in it with us, going through it with us. As Hebrews 4 tells us, probably my favorite verse in all of Scripture, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That we would be like Daniel and in our times of crisis seek the Lord as our first response rather than our last resort. And I can't help also noticing that at some point Daniel had made the decision that his closest friends would be guys that he could call in a time of crisis and say, I need you to come pray with me. And they would show up and come pray with him. See, Daniel had moved to Babylon and he would have had every justification for making friends who were not believers or who had walked away from being faithful to the Lord. He could have said, I'm, I'm a stranger in a foreign land. What do you want me to do? But he kept his inner circle full of men who were serious about God. And that's a good goal for you and I. We can have a lot of friends, but make a note of this. Our closest friends need to be genuine believers. Our closest friends need to be genuine believers. So how do you get relationships with legit, passionate, solid believers in your life? How do you get those relationships? I'll tell you. Be a legit, passionate, solid believer yourself, and the Lord will lead you to those relationships. We attract what we are, and even secular psychology recognizes that we become like those we associate with most of the time. We become like those we associate with most of the time. It's been well said, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. And Daniel understood that. Jesus had dinner with tax collectors and sinners, but contrary to what society will tell you, he didn't do that all the time. He spent most of his time with his disciples and some godly friends like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who lived just outside of Jerusalem and Bethany. And whenever Jesus went to an environment like a party or something that could be a morally compromising situation, who's with him? His disciples. His disciples. Even Jesus understood how important it is to surround yourself with the right people. You see, the bottom will fall out of your life at some point in the future. That's not me being prophetic. That's a statistical certainty. And when that happens, that is not the time to be scrambling to find spiritual support only to discover that you don't have those relationships that you need. The time to form those relationships is right now, not when the crisis hits, so that when the crisis hits, there's someone you can call who will show up and pray with you and stand with you in faith. Verse 19, then the secret was revealed, underline revealed to Daniel in a night vision. God comes through for Daniel in a miraculous way. You see, Daniel has a dream. I love this. It's like an inception thing. Daniel has a dream in which the king's dream is revealed to him and the meaning of the king's dream. It's like a dream within a dream within a dream. It's pretty neat. But here's what I love about this, because you might have missed this at first. This means Daniel prayed with his friends. I think we can safely assume this is passionate prayer going on, asking the Lord for his mercy. But this is what it means. It means he prayed with his friends and nothing happened, right? The answer didn't come. And Daniel didn't freak out. He had faith in God. In fact, he had so much faith with God 
that under a death sentence, he went home, got into bed, and fell asleep. You getting how incredible that is? So get this, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream and he can't sleep because he can't understand it. Daniel and his friends are going to be killed if they can't understand the king's dream. Daniel prays and at some point says, God has heard us. Okay, let's go to bed. And he goes off to bed and the answer comes in his sleep. He's not pacing all night. He's not repeating the same prayer over and over just in case God didn't hear him the first hundred times. Now he had faith that his God had heard him and so he was at peace with whatever the outcome was because he knew the issue is not that I haven't called on God. I've called on him and he has heard me. So make a note of this. Daniel slept in peace because he was confident that his God had heard his prayers. He was confident as God had heard his prayers. Oftentimes when we do pray and we're in a desperate situation, we, we pray like God is like an elderly man who's hard of hearing, right? We just pray the same thing over and over again. God, would you just help this situation right now? Help this situation right now! God's like, I, I heard you the first time. You don't have to yell. I'm omnipresent. And I'm in every single atom in the universe simultaneously. I can hear you. It's okay. And Daniel understood that. So now pay attention. Daniel and his boys are under an imminent death sentence, but take note, when Daniel wakes up the next morning, he's like, oh, cool. Got the dream, got the interpretation. Doesn't do what I would do. Doesn't run off into the court of the king and be like, I've got it, I've got it. Underline what it says Daniel does. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Where we might go, woohoo, problem solved. Daniel stops to thank and praise God for what he's done. It is so easy for you and I to get into a mindset where God is not doing his part anytime things don't go well in our lives. And when God does take care of us, he's simply doing his job, what he should be doing. And without realizing it, we get into a mindset of ingratitude where we don't thank God for his goodness, but we blame him for everything that goes wrong in our lives. I want to be more like Daniel. And I want to suggest that one of the most practical ways to do that is to simply begin your personal times of prayer always with thanks and praise. Whether you're in the car, whether you are at home, when you begin to pray, begin by thanking God for who he is and what he's done for you. And be specific about the recent ways you have experienced his blessings in your life. When we do this, we cultivate, we practice, and we build a heart of gratitude, like flexing a muscle and building a muscle. Our gratitude muscle becomes strong, which makes us increasingly aware of how God takes care of us. Can I tell you, God is taking care of you whether you're aware of it or not. But if you're aware of it, you're gonna have a lot more peace in your life. And instead of being a cranky ingrate who says, where's God? We become aware of him and we begin to see his goodness and his faithfulness all over our lives. Beginning our prayers that way builds our faith because before we share our needs with the Lord, we've already reminded ourselves of how he's come through for us in the past, how he's taken care of us. And we've reminded our spirits of the character of God, that he's a heavenly father who loves us and he's gonna continue to take care of us. Thanks and praise jogs our spiritual memories, which by the way are generally terrible. So make a note of this, regularly expressing praise and thanks to God builds our faith. It builds our faith. 
He's been faithful in the past. We're thankful for it. It reminds us he'll be faithful again in the future. In Luke 17, we read the story of when Jesus healed 10 lepers and he sends them off to the temple to be inspected to confirm that they've been healed. And the Bible tells us that only one of them returns to thank Jesus. And Jesus tells them, your faith has made you well. It's saved you. And the word that's used for saved there is the Greek word sozo, which doesn't just mean you're spiritually saved. It means he's made you whole mind, body, spirit. He has made you whole. You see, thanking and praising God is a key to wholeness in your life. There's no time to praise Daniel. Lives are at stake. Things need to be handled. It's not an efficient way to use time right now. From Mary anointing the feet of Jesus with costly perfume to King David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem and offering a sacrifice every six steps, those who take the time to praise and thank God always end up being blessed by God. Nobody has ever had their lives ruined because they were too busy thanking and praising God. That's when my marriage fell apart. That's when I went broke because my work life just crumbled. I was so busy thanking and praising God and it was my downfall. Nobody has that testimony. Here's how Daniel thanked God. I love this. Let's read verse 20. Daniel answered and said to the Lord, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, underline his. And, and then underline this, he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. On a spiritual level, this is fascinating and encouraging to me because while the Bible tells us that Satan is in charge of the world right now, the Bible says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Paul calls him the God of this age. While Satan is in charge of the world right now, we know that he is restrained to a degree by the presence of the church on the earth. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.7 that tells us that. But here in Daniel, we're reminded that Satan doesn't have the ability to violate certain natural laws that God has put into place in the universe. God is the one who still changes times and seasons. We're also told that God is the one who removes kings and raises up kings. You see, Satan's rule of the earth has its limits even now. The flow of history, who acquires power and who loses power is governed by the Lord, even now. When we discover the meaning of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's going to become even more obvious that it's God who controls the distribution of political power on the earth because he's going to prove it by predicting in advance who's going to have that power across the centuries. So write this down. God controls the distribution of political power on the earth. God controls the distribution of political power on the earth, even right now. Even when it doesn't seem to make sense, it's moving towards an end purpose that is God's. So Daniel continues to bless the Lord with what I would call the summation of the book of Daniel. This is what Daniel is all about. He praises God and says, he, underline he, gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep things and secrets he knows what is in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Who gets power? Who gets knowledge? Who gets wisdom? The Lord decides. The Lord decides. And you should feel privileged because the Lord has decided to give wisdom and insight to you through his word and to me. 
Verse 23, he says, I thank you and I praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. See, Daniel never forgot where he came from and he never forgot where his gifts and abilities came from. A lot of us understand the concept of stewardship when it comes to money and stuff, but stewardship involves our whole lives, our gifts, our talents, our abilities. And Daniel is a shining example of what it means to steward one's abilities. You see, he always took care to make sure that he remembered that anything he had the ability to do ultimately came from the Lord. And we might say, well, I learned how to do that. You could only learn how to do that because God gave you the ability to learn. And Daniel was always careful to give the Lord credit. Write this down. Daniel was careful to give God the credit for every good thing in his life. Every good thing in his life. He understood there's no such thing as a self-made man, only a God-made man. Verse 24 Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. So even though Arioch is a military man, he's also a bureaucrat. He's also a politician. We know this because of how he's going to present this situation to the king. Verse 25, Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. And it's just amusing to me because Nebuchadnezzar had to be rolling his eyes because he's like, Daniel was in here yesterday talking about this. I know you're not the guy who went and found him, but whatever, Arioch. Let's, Let's get to the point. Verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name, this was his Babylonian name, was Belteshazzar, are you, underline you, able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation. Get what he's asking him. Can you tell me? Do you have the ability? Now notice how Daniel answers, verse 27. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king has demanded, and understand that all these guys are in the room at this moment. The wise men, it's probably pointing to them, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. But... Underline this, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, and then underline what will be in the latter days. You see, Daniel's saying there's no man anywhere who can interpret your dream and tell it to you, but there's a God in heaven, and I know him, and he has revealed your dream to you. The phrase the latter days there simply means the future. And so the purpose of God in giving Nebuchadnezzar this dream was to reveal to him things that are to unfold in the future. That was the purpose of the dream, and we're told so explicitly. So write this down. It's very clear that this dream will pertain to things that will unfold in the future. Things that unfold in the future. Now obviously, it's also so that the Lord can prove who he is through prophecy and give us believers this information as it is recorded in his word. And I just want to point out that God himself tells us in his word that in the Bible, the primary way he proves who he is, the primary way God says, this is how you can know my word is my word, is through prophecy. 
The thing that distinguishes the Bible from every other so-called sacred writing or literature and every other belief system is prophecy. You know, the only thing relating to prophecy that's found in the Quran is it says, then Muhammad says, I will go to Mecca again, which I think is a pretty easy prophecy to fulfill yourself when you're within walking distance of Mecca. That's the only thing in the Quran that pertains to the future. But only the Bible records very specific predictions about the future that have already come true to the letter. And for those who seek truth, it provides evidence that leads to only one conclusion. The Bible is supernatural in its origins. It has an author who is outside of time. Only God can truly predict the future. Not even Satan can do that. And God instructs us to use prophecy in the Bible as a means to discover that he is who he truly says he is, the one and only God. This is why the punishment for false prophets was so serious in the Old Testament. You wanna know how serious it was to be a prophet in the Old Testament? If one of your prophecies was wrong, you were stoned to death. You were stoned to death. We've got whole sections of Christianity where a lot of people would be in a lot of trouble if we were still doing that. I don't think there would be very much on TBN right now. It'd be like one hour of viewing a day. It'd be like normally in this hour we would have Reverend so-and-so, but as you know, we had to stone him to death last week because his prophecy about Donald Trump didn't come true in this specific area. It just wouldn't work, but we'd take prophecy a lot more seriously. When Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal at the Last Supper, Jesus says this. He says, just let me read it to you. He says, now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. When Israel was rebelling against God and serving false gods in the years before the Babylonian captivity, which took Daniel off to Babylon, God spoke through one of his prophets, Isaiah, and he led Isaiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make fun of Israel's false gods. This is what Isaiah says. Present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the God of Jacob. Let them, the false gods, bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know you are gods. Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. In other words, do whatever you want. Do good or do evil in the future. Just call it in advance so we can be amazed that you're gods. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. You see, when you have a moment of faltering faith, and you think, did I, did I just imagine this whole Jesus thing? Am I just a Christian because my parents were Christians? or I don't have anything else to do with my time, go back to Bible prophecy. Why? Because there is no other conclusion you can come to when you study Bible prophecy other than God is real and speaks to us through his word. That's the only logical conclusion that the facts support. Real prophecy, the kind that comes from the Lord, is always very specific. It isn't based on statistics or probability, but on secret knowledge that only God could know. And that's what we're going to see right here. Daniel goes on and he says to Nebuchadnezzar, your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed. 
of what would come to pass after this. Again, that just means in the future. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. Are you picking up on all the times God is intentionally being redundant, making it clear that this vision has to do with the future? What will be? What will come to pass after this? The latter days. He's being redundant on purpose so that we understand this prophecy has to do with the future from this point in history. Verse 30, but as for me, check Daniel's character here, as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know, that means that you may understand the thoughts of your heart. Nebuchadnezzar, I'm not able to tell you this because I'm wise, but because my God is merciful and he cares about my fate and the fate of my brothers. And this same God wants you to understand your dream, O king. Verse 31, you, O king, were watching and behold, a great image, underline the word image, it just means a great statue. And this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. That means it literally filled him with awe. It doesn't mean, oh, awesome, dude. It means it filled him with awe. It took his breath away. This image's head was of fine gold, underlined gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, and partly of clay. So this statue has five different levels to it and starting at the head, the materials become inferior as you make your way down the statue. It goes from gold all the way down to eventually iron and clay. And we'll find out what that represents in just a minute. Verse 34, you watched while a stone, underline stone, was cut out without hands, underline without hands. The idea here is that the statue is man-made, but this stone is not man-made. It's something else entirely. And the stone struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff, literally like dust from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that, and then underline, no trace of them was found. And the stone, underline stone, that struck the image became, and then underline the rest of this, a great mountain that filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Did you notice what a humble guy Daniel is? Because God spoke to him, yet he chooses to bring his friends into the equation by saying, we will tell the interpretation. I'm sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were like, sounds good. You just keep going. You're on a roll. Just roll with it, Daniel. So can you imagine the scene here? Because the king says nothing, which means Daniel is correct and has perfectly told the king what his dream was. The king must have been terrified and he must have been riveted. His court must have been in absolute silence and the magi must have been astounded as they're putting together the pieces and realizing that based on the king's reaction, Daniel has done it. He's just told the king exactly what he dreamed. He's done the impossible. They're astounded as Daniel continues with the interpretation, verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven, the God of heaven, has given you a kingdom, 
power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them. You are this head of gold. Underline, you are this head of gold. Daniel is so gutsy. He's such a man of faith and boldness because he's standing before the most powerful man on earth and he's saying, everything you have, everything you've done is because God has given it to you and God has enabled you to do it. You think you've got this long list of accomplishments? It's God who did it all. It was the Lord. And that's going to be an issue when we reach chapter 4 because Nebuchadnezzar is going to forget this truth. So here's the first part of the interpretation. Write this down. The head of gold on the statue is the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. It's formed around 606 B.C. and it will continue to around 539 B.C. So we're told explicitly that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire, is the head of gold here. And that's like giving us the, the key to the code the, that unlocks the rest of it for us. We're going to find that each level of the statue will represent an empire that ruled the earth, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, continuing up to the present day, and even into the future that lies ahead of us. These empires, this is why it's so amazing, they're going to be laid out in advance in perfect order. For us today, it's known history. When Daniel recorded this prophecy, these things hadn't happened yet, and some of them would take thousands of years to unfold. That's what makes this so amazing. Now, you also need to understand that from God's perspective, the whole world revolves around what? Jerusalem and Israel. Jerusalem and Israel, that's the center of the earth from God's perspective. And for that reason, he's only going to deal with empires that will affect Israel, empires that will conquer the known world, which is why the Bible is not going to mention the Maya or the Inca or things like the Chinese dynasties. They don't relate to Israel. They got nothing to do with Israel. As a side note for you Bible students, this is the time period that Jesus refers to as the times of the Gentiles in Luke 21:24. The times of the Gentiles in Luke 21:24. So Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarch. He ruled as a despot. His empire was the most powerful that's ever existed, bar none. It was quite literally the gold standard. The Babylonian empire had more of an effect on the known world than any other empire ever has since. Verse 39, but after you, after the Babylonian empire, shall arise another kingdom, underline kingdom, inferior to yours. Hence the silver instead of the gold. And according to world history, the Babylonians would eventually be conquered by the chest and arms of silver, which are the Medo-Persian Empire. Write that down. The Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great, who's actually going to be introduced in this book of Daniel later on. He conquers them around 539 B.C. and the Medo-Persian Empire goes on for almost two centuries to 332 B.C. That's longer than two centuries, actually. Cyrus the Great was half Persian, half Mede, and he joined those two cultures together into one empire. That's why it's commonly known as the Medo-Persian Empire in world history. And that's why it's depicted in this dream as two arms, the Medes and the Persians. It's a dual empire. The Medo-Persian 
empire will not be as strong as the Babylonian empire because it won't be an absolute monarchy. It'll be a weaker system. It'll be a constitutional monarchy. Tuck that piece of information away because Daniel is still going to be on the scene when Cyrus and the Medo-Persians take over Babylon and King Darius is going to have Daniel thrown in the lion's den. When we get there, we'll find out Darius doesn't want to do that. But because of constitutional restrictions, he's unable to break a law that he himself has instituted because it's a constitutional monarchy. Even the king is bound to a constitution. Then we read this. Then another, a third kingdom, underlying kingdom of bronze, shall rule over all the earth. Well, who conquered the Medo-Persians? The belly and the thighs of bronze are the Greek, write that down, the Greek empire under someone you may have heard of, Alexander the Great. He conquers in 332 B.C. and the Greek Empire will continue to 68 B.C. And in fact, we'll see remnants of that Greek culture still very much around during the time of Christ and the Gospels. Alexander conquered the known world, the known world before he was 31 years old, going all the way to India before he was 31. His empire was even weaker, though, structurally than a constitutional monarchy. It was an oligarchy. It was essentially a group of men who ruled together, and Alexander was accountable to this council of men. At the height of his glory and power, Alexander famously breaks down and weeps like a baby, crying aloud, are there no more worlds for me to conquer? And he's depressed. And after saying that, he has a party. He gets absolutely hammered. He walks back to his tent in the rain, falls asleep in his tent in his cold, wet clothes, and just a few days later, he dies of pneumonia in Babylon, in Nebuchadnezzar's palace at the age of 32 in 323 BC. After his death, his empire was divided among his four generals, and the two most powerful guys were Ptolemy, who takes the south, and Seleucus, who takes the east. They form many empires of their own that control most of the world until the rise of the Roman Empire. Now notice the special attention that's going to be given to the fourth kingdom. Verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom, the fourth kingdom, will break in pieces and crush all the others. Make a note of this. The legs of iron are the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, which comes to fruition in earnest around 68 BC. When Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian Empire would conquer a country, he would bring back that country's best and brightest, like Daniel, and train them to contribute to the empire. Cyrus the Great, who led the Medo-Persian Empire, took pride in freeing slaves and allowing cultures to flourish. And we actually see him do that because when he conquers Babylon, he's the one who lets the Jews go back to Jerusalem and Israel. The Greeks took pride in raising the social standards of the territories they conquered. In fact, many times when Alexander would go to conquer a city, he would find the gates open and the people lining the streets to welcome him in a victory parade because they wanted the Greek rule over themselves. They wanted the common language. They wanted the common currency. They wanted the road system because being a part of the Greek empire generally improved your standard of living. 
Romans were very different to all three of those empires. The Romans took pride in wreaking destruction and humiliation on those that they conquered, creating things like gladiatorial fights and animals eating people as sport and crucifying hundreds if not thousands of people in the cities that they conquered to have them lining the roads leading into the city as a warning in advance of what would happen if you rebelled against their rule. Truly, the Roman Empire was a crushing, iron-like force that would extend further west than any empire before it, reaching all the way to the British Isles. The Roman Empire, structurally, was even less powerful than an oligarchy. It was a limited democracy. So why is the Roman Empire represented by two legs on the statue? Because as some of you may know, the Roman Empire would famously split in two. A Western Empire centered on the city of Rome and an Eastern Empire centered on Constantinople, which is Istanbul in modern day Turkey, which is also known as the Byzantine Empire. The Western Empire would fragment into pieces by the fifth century AD, but the Eastern Empire would continue for another thousand years. Here's where it gets interesting. Because now suddenly, things stop. And I'll tell you why. It's because in 70 AD, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans and Israel ceases to exist as a political nation in any form. And when it comes to end times prophecy in the Bible, Israel is God's clock. It's his stopwatch. And so God's prophetic stopwatch stopped ticking when Israel ceased to be a nation in 70 AD. But here's the amazing thing, as many of us know, that clock starts ticking again in 1948, almost 2,000 years later, when Israel becomes a prophetic nation again. So make a note of this and we'll keep unpacking it. God's prophetic clock stopped ticking in 70 AD with the destruction of Israel and resumed in 1948 at the rebirth of the state of Israel. God's prophetic clock stopped ticking in 70 AD and resumed in 1948. So here's what this means. It means that we should be looking for the emergence of the fifth and final empire in our lifetimes. We know it's gonna dramatically affect Israel. We know that when this empire emerges. So we know it's not China or something like that. So let's see what we're told about this fifth empire. Let's do some detective work. Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, underline toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, underline iron. So the first thing we notice is that this fifth kingdom is not made of a pure metal. But we also see that this fifth kingdom is partly made up of the same metal as the fourth kingdom. Did you see that? It's partly made up of iron, which made up the fourth kingdom. So this tells us that this fifth kingdom is going to be partly made up of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, in some way. Now hang with me, this is all going somewhere. How many toes does a regular person have? Not a trick question. Ten toes. So when we reach Daniel chapter 7, we're actually going to learn about the ten kings of this final empire. In Daniel 7, they're going to be referred to as ten horns. But that's the reason that this empire is the feet. He goes on and, he, and it says, the kingdom shall be divided. That word divided just means fragmented. And we really need to understand what this means. He's not saying when this fifth kingdom comes to power, that kingdom's going to be broken up. He's saying when that fifth kingdom begins to emerge, 
it's going to be in a fragmented state at the beginning of that process. It's going to be fragmented. In other words, the regions that made up the Roman Empire will still be in existence, but in a fragmented state, sort of waiting for someone to bring them together and unite them. That's the way things are going to be at the beginning of this empire, which is, of course, exactly where the world was at when the prophetic clock started ticking again in 1948. The pieces of the Roman Empire were still there, mostly strong, but just fragmented. Great Britain, Spain, France, Germany, the Netherlands, and on and on we could go. Still existing, not vanished from history, still among the strongest nations on earth, yet fragmented. Remember that history tells us that unlike the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, or the Greeks, the Roman Empire was never conquered. Some of you probably know that. The Roman Empire is never conquered. It just kind of fades away and fragments across the centuries into different individual countries. Parts of it are conquered. Parts of it become independent. In fact, even up to 1453, there was still technically a Roman emperor on the throne in Constantinople. By that point, he was basically just a figurehead mayor of the city. That's how reduced the power of Rome had become by then. So track with me here. In order for this prophecy about this fifth kingdom to come true, there would have to be a unification movement among these key countries that make up the revived Roman Empire. Are you tracking with me? It says this fifth empire is going to be made up of part iron, part Roman Empire. It's going to be in a fragmented state at the beginning of its revival. And before 1948, other men had tried to revive the Roman Empire. This is not a new idea. So if you're like, a revived Roman Empire, come on. You don't know your history. Multiple famous men have already tried to do it in history. Charlemagne tried to do it with the Holy Roman Empire. Napoleon tried to do it. Mussolini tried to do it. Hitler tried to do it. Why doesn't it work? Because it wasn't yet God's timing. The prophetic clock was paused. Israel was not a political nation between 70 AD and 1948. However, 1948, it becomes a political nation again and things start moving. And the Bible talks about how the Roman Empire is going to re-emerge as a reality in the end times. The time period beginning in 1948. So remember what we just said, that in order for the prophecy about the fifth kingdom to come true, there would have to be a unification movement among this fragmented Roman Empire. We've actually seen that take place since 1948, haven't we? In fact, this European unification movement, you can check this out, it's amazing. It begins in 1948, almost immediately after Israel becomes a nation again. There's nothing happening before that, but right after it, things kick into gear with the Hague Congress, which results in the European Movement International and the College of Europe. The leaders of Europe start getting together to discuss things. In 1952, the European coal and steel community was created and was declared to be, quote, a first step in the Federation of Europe. In 1957, the Treaty of Rome created the European Economic Community or the European Common Market and the European Atomic Energy Community. In 1967, all of those communities were merged together into the European communities. 
1979, the first European parliamentary elections were held. In 1985, the Schengen Agreement paved the way for the creation of open borders without passport controls between most member states and some non-member states. In 1986, the European flag began to be used by the community and the single European act is signed. In 1990, Germany reunifies into a single nation and becomes part of the European community. In 1993, the European Union was formally established. In 2002, the EU currency replaces the national currency of 12 member states of the European Union. 2009 saw reforms that created a permanent presidential position on the European Council, which rules the European Union. All of that has happened since 1948. Are you still laughing at the idea of a revived Roman Empire in our lifetime? You see, you can't because it's happening right before our eyes. And if you're scoffing and you're saying, well, what about the Brexit? All I'm going to say is just wait and see. Let's wait and see. Hasn't happened yet, has it? Hasn't actually happened. Hasn't passed. Let's see where it goes. Let's see what happens. You see, things don't always unfold the way we expect. Even if England leaves the European Union, I'm not sweating it because things don't always unfold the way we expect, but the end result is always what the Word of God says. Always. And all this is important because the Bible talks about one who's going to show up in the future and succeed in reviving this Roman Empire and ruling it. He is the one infamously known in Scripture as Antichrist, and the world will receive him as their Savior. They're going to see him as the ultimate unifying force, and he's going to accomplish the seemingly impossible, things like brokering peace in the Middle East. So make a note of this. The feet and toes of clay and iron is, again, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. We don't know when it's going to fully begin or when it's going to fully end, but we know it's going to be under the rule of Antichrist. The good news for believers is that before Antichrist comes on the world stage, Jesus is going to take his church to be with him in the event known as the rapture. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen online to our message on Revelation chapter 4. So the Roman Empire will be fragmented before it starts coming together again in this fifth empire. We go on and we read back half of verse 41, yet... Underline, the strength of the iron shall be in it. So the strength of the Roman Empire is going to be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes, underline, toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. The idea is that this revived Roman Empire will have aspects of strength because some of the individual countries are strong, but it's also going to be a fragile union. I believe that's because while Antichrist will cause it to be a single union, it will at first be a union made up of independent countries, member states as the EU is now, but Antichrist is going to bring them together in a way we haven't even seen yet. We see this today with the European Union. It's one big union, and so it's strong in that sense, but it's not like the European Union has become a military powerhouse at which the rest of the world trembles because they've combined together and become a superpower. The countries of the EU still bicker among themselves and things like the Brexit show us that it's a tenuous union at times and it's ultimately going to take a political master to hold it together. And that political master is going to show up very soon. It's strong in some ways but fragile in others. And so now we come to a very strange verse 
Because up to now, it's all been pretty mainstream and non-weird, right? So now we come to a really, really strange verse. And I can't get totally sidetracked, but I've got to point this out to those of you who are Bible students. Verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle, underline this, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Ceramic clay just means miry clay, which is clay made from dust. And in the Bible, dust is always an idiom for death. So it's iron mixed with death, the Roman Empire mixed with death itself. When Daniel talks about the miry clay, he uses a personal pronoun. If you notice this, he says, they will mingle with the seed of men. So we know it represents people of some sort. And we know that the they that are being spoken about here are clearly some sort of ruling political class in this fifth empire. He calls them they. And he says they will mingle with the seed of men. What's weird about this? Well, a lot of scholars point out that when it says they will mingle with the seed of men, it's implying that the they are what? Not men. They're not men. It seems to imply that those who take the political lead in this fifth empire will be somehow inhuman, mingling with those who are human. And yeah, I know, that's weird. But if you've been with us a while, you know it's not the first time this concept comes up in the Bible. In fact, Jesus himself says that in the last days it shall be as it was in the days of Lot and in the days of Noah, the days of Noah. And this same issue inhuman mixing with human comes up in just the sixth chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 6. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, this is just a shameless plug to go and listen to our message online called The Days of Noah and go check it out. Just search for that on the search box on our website. You'll find the message because we can't get into it now. But I wanted to point that out to those of you who've gone through Revelation with us and gone through some of these studies. It's saying right here, this fifth empire, this revived Roman empire is going to be led in some way by a class of those who are not human, but they're going to mingle with humans. So now Daniel explains this stone that becomes a great mountain. He's finished talking about the empires. Now he's going to talk about and explain the stone that becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth and destroys the statue. Verse 44, he says, I love this. I have this like whole thing underlined in my Bible. Verse 44, in the days of these kings, understand that, in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. You see, the final kingdom is not part of the statue. It's not part of the kingdoms of man. The final kingdom that will eclipse all other kingdoms will be the kingdom of God, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which will not last, by the way, for just a thousand years, but will last forever. In fact, the word tells us it will outlast the earth. It will outlast the universe itself. So write this down. The stone is Jesus. The stone is Jesus. And there are many places in Scripture where Jesus is referred to as a stone or a rock. And I put some of those references on your outline that you can look up on your own. But I want to draw your attention to something Jesus said of himself in Matthew 21. Speaking of himself, he said, Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him 
to powder. Sounds a lot like the stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, doesn't it? You see, Jesus is saying, if you will fall on me, if you will believe in me, you will be broken for everyone who comes to me must confess that he's a sinner who needs forgiveness. You gotta be broken before the Lord in order for him to save you. However, if you reject me, Jesus says, I will fall on you and you'll be destroyed. You see, Jesus is the stone that will either be the rock of your salvation or the rock of your destruction. We haven't seen yet the emergence of the fifth kingdom, the revived Roman Empire in full. Not yet. We can see it coming together in some incredible ways. But even if you disagree with me on this, really track with me here. Even if you're like, Jeff, I'm not buying the revived Roman Empire thing. I'm not buying your timeline. I'm not buying any of it. I think you're crazy. I'm just sitting here politely because this is Canada and that's what we do. So even if you disagree with me on all this, you cannot disagree when it comes to what verse 44 says. Did you notice it says, in the days of these kings. So what does that literally mean? It's very simple. It means that the fifth empire, the feet and toes, will still be in play on the world stage when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. There's no other way you can interpret that verse because he takes pains to say, in the days of these kings. So it's not like this is a prophecy that ended in 70 AD a long time ago. This prophecy will still be in play. The fifth kingdom will still exist on the earth when Jesus comes to destroy it and set up his kingdom on the earth. You cannot make verse 44 say anything else. And now just in case we try to twist what verse 44 says, which a lot of good people, good people by the way, do in what I believe is ignorance by claiming that the kingdom of God has already come to earth. You might have heard that before. No, the kingdom of God came to earth when Jesus came to the earth and now things are just gradually getting better and better, which makes me think, do you read? That, but they believe things are getting better and better and better and the culmination of all this is gonna be Jesus coming back. Because as anyone knows, if you look around at what's going on in the world right now, we're clearly trending up. And I can't wait to see what great things are gonna happen in the world over the next several years because everything is going so well. So. Just to make sure we don't get caught up in thinking that, verse 44 also tells us that when God's kingdom is established, when it comes to earth, it shall, quote, never be destroyed. It shall, quote, this is big, not be left to other people. What does that mean? It means Jesus himself, God himself, will rule the kingdom on the earth. He's not going to delegate that to someone else, even the church. He is going to be the ruler on the earth. And then we're also told that when the kingdom of God comes to earth, this is the big one, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. It's going to obliterate every other political power on the earth. I don't know what your view is, but I am very sure that has not happened yet. I'm very sure. In fact, the only time the Bible talks about Jesus reigning on the earth politically is during the millennium when he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth. The Lord took pains in verse 44 to be as specific as possible to make it clear that this prophecy is still in play today and the kingdom of God has not yet come to earth. I have to be honest, I don't know how in the world 
you can read verse 44 and come to any other conclusion. I think it's extremely clear. Verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. Underline after this. That just means in the future. And then I love Daniel's confidence here. He doesn't say, and king, I'm, I'm pretty sure about this. He says, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. This is a done deal, O king. And you and I can be equally confident that every unfulfilled prophecy in the Bible will be fulfilled exactly as the Lord has said. Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar, this just an amazing scene. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel. Ah, uh, Nebi, Nebi, he's so close, so close, but so far. But don't worry, he's going to get it in later chapters. And commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. He recognizes immediately in his spirit that Daniel's spoken the truth. Again, can you imagine the scene in the king's court where Daniel, this rookie level outsider Hebrew, tells the king the dream, calls it, tells him the interpretation, and the king's response is to bow down before Daniel. The most powerful man in the world is on his face before Daniel, saying you need to treat him like a god because that's who this man is. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is, is doing. What a scene. The Magi must have been terrified, puzzled, jealous, astounded. What a moment. Verse 47. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. You notice that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't yet say, your God shall be my God. He doesn't do that yet. Verse 48, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. You see, just as Daniel was not the one who revealed the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was not the one who promoted Daniel. The Lord was the one who revealed the dream. The Lord was the one who promoted Daniel. And please understand what's just happened here. Daniel has just been made prime minister of what will go on to become the greatest empire the world has ever seen. Daniel is ruling that empire on behalf of King Nebuchadnezzar. There have been very few men in history, would say probably you could count them on one hand, the number of men in history who have actually had more power than Daniel has. This is not rookie little kids Bible story stuff. He is running the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. It's, it's astounding. But you can imagine the tension, in case you missed it, that Daniel has now been made leader of the Magi, the wise men in Babylon. Last week we mentioned this. It was a hereditary priesthood, which means you had to come from a certain bloodline to be a Magi. So not only is Daniel not from that bloodline, he's not even Chaldean. He's not from Babylon. He's a Hebrew. And not only has he been made a Magi, he's been made chief of all the Magi. And the tension that this is going to create is going to stir up some hatred of Daniel out of deep jealousy that is going to cause some of the other magi to conspire against him in coming years to try and have him killed in the lion's den, which we'll read about another time. Verse 49, also Daniel petitioned the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. 
But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. He sat right with the king involved in everything he was doing. So the power structure of Babylon, biggest empire the world has ever seen, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel ruling the whole kingdom on Nebuchadnezzar's behalf, and the three sub-managers underneath Daniel are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What an incredible turn of events. Nebuchadnezzar's dream is from the world's perspective. It shows us how the world sees these empires. Looks at them and says, they're impressive. Precious metals, huge. They, they fill us with awe. And yet when we reach chapter 7, Daniel is going to be given a vision of these same empires in reverse order from the viewpoint of God. And we're going to see how God sees them. It's going to be very, very different. Daniel is going to be and is a book that builds upon itself. In other words, you need to be with us as we make our way through this book. If you miss a message, catch up online as soon as you possibly can because each message is going to help you understand the one after it. The best solution is just be at church and get the most out of the series that you can. And don't miss the significance of the fact that 80 plus percent of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 2, the king's dream, has already come to pass. It's already been fulfilled. And the remaining percentage, which seemed impossible 100 years ago, a revived Roman Empire, has almost entirely come to pass before our eyes right now. I would say there are not a lot of deck chairs that need to be shuffled right now for things to be set up for Antichrist to come in lead a revived Roman Empire and broker peace as the president of the European Union in the Middle East. Everything's in place. We're running out of things on the checklist that need to happen before everything begins to unfold very, very quickly. The Word of God is true. You can trust it. Prophecy proves it. You can take it to the bank. You can build your life upon it. And I want to say this in closing. Based on what we've read in the first two chapters of Daniel, was God with Daniel in his difficult situation? Was he with him? Of course he was. You can't read it any other way. And yet, Daniel will never again see his parents. That prayer is never going to be answered. And you know what other prayer is never going to be answered? He'll never see Jerusalem again. Never happen. And you may be in a very difficult season or situation or place in life. And you might not be delivered from that place, this side of heaven. But that doesn't mean God has left you. And it doesn't mean God can't do amazing things in your life where you are right now. Choose to be faithful where you find yourself today. Become a man or woman of prayer today. Become the kind of Christian that other Christian warriors are going to want to have as a friend today. Stop saying, if only I was in blank instead of here. If only blank was different in my life. Do you know God's not limited by your situation? God is just as mighty and strong in Babylon as he is in Jerusalem. God is not limited by your life circumstance right now. He's as powerful and as strong today in your life as he will be on the easiest, most comfortable day of your life. Believe that. Really believe that. Some things are not going to get better this side of heaven. Some things are not going to be healed or restored. But that doesn't mean God can't do great things where you are right now. 
So why don't you leave the future in his hands? Because the future is already in his hands. Anyway, why don't you put your faith and your trust in him regardless of whether or not everything gets fixed here and now and choose to believe that God can and God wants to bless you where you are right now. And if you could ask Daniel right now whether he'd rather have had the opportunity to stay in Jerusalem with his parents, I think he'd say, I choose to be taken to Babylon because that's where I saw the Lord do great and mighty things. I want to be where the Lord wants me, period, whether it's Babylon or Jerusalem. I want the Lord to do his work and to work his plan in my life, period. Let's make that our prayer today. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And then, Father, we thank you and we praise you this evening that you've done great things in every single one of our lives. Lord, we're not in this room understanding deep and profound things because we are wiser than other people. We're not in this room having the mystery of salvation and the glory of God revealed to us because we were somehow more deserving than others. Lord, we are simply those who have clearly seen that you are God and have said, would you be merciful to us? And we have found a God of grace and a God of mercy. And so we thank you and we praise you for revealing yourself to us and your word to us and things that are yet to unfold in the future to us. We recognize that your word will never return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent without fail 100% of the time. And so, Lord, we cling to your word this evening, to the promises of your word, knowing and believing that none of us are the one exception to your word. Your word will be proven perfectly true. You will be proven perfectly faithful. You always have been. You always will be. And so, God, we just let our worries go this evening. We let our fears and concerns about the future go in the name of Jesus. And we confess the future belongs to you. It is in your hands. And that's where we choose to rest as well. Like Daniel, we know that you hear us when we call, Lord God. And so tonight, whether our future feels secure or extremely uncertain during the coming days on the earth, tonight we will lay down our head and we will sleep and rest in peace because the future is in your hands. And we are in your hands, Jesus. We praise you and we thank you for the peace that only you can offer. We love you and we bless you, God. Now to he who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or imagine, to him be the glory through Christ Jesus in the church, both now and in the ages to come, forever and ever and ever. Amen. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.